My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? Morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. Good morning. I'm Mandy Zucker, host of the Morning Meeting Podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm interviewing Megan Ashley. She's a blogger, life coach, and podcaster living in Baltimore, Maryland. At 18 years old in 2006, she witnessed her mother's murder, and she survived her own attempted murder. She's currently in the process of writing a memoir about that night, her journey through grief, and how it's affected her life and mental health. I will warn you that some of the details that she shares are a bit disturbing. Megan, thank you so much for coming on the morning meeting. I'm really glad to have you here today. I'm so excited. I haven't been a guest on a podcast in a really long time. I don't even remember the last time. (laughs) So I've been excited and nervous all day. (laughs) But you have your own podcast. I do. What's your podcast? It's called Queers Next Door. It's an LGBTQIA podcast. We talk about things that are happening in the world, but through a very queer lens. Mm -hmm. And we focus a lot on self-care. So, I mean, every week we're talking about how we're taking care of ourselves and things going on in the world. And it's a lot of fun. I'm glad. That sounds great. Thank you. (laughs) What else do you do? I know that the podcast is just one tiny little piece of your world. Yeah. About you before we get started. I do so many things. So, professionally, I'm a personal assistant and I work for a social media marketing agency based in LA. And personally, I do a lot of different creative projects. I have a YouTube channel, I have a blog, I have the podcast, and I'm just starting something new called Grief Chat on my YouTube channel, which hopefully you can join me soon. And um, so that will be like a conversation just about grief and trying to normalize that a bit. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about what got you into that work, into the grief chat, into the grief space? Well, so I'm sure we'll get into this more in a bit, but my mom was murdered when I was 18 and I witnessed her murder and I was also attacked. So I survived attempted murder. So obviously that was a very traumatic experience. Um, I think I spent many years mostly dealing with the trauma and not so much grief. And I mean, I think I'll be dealing with the trauma forever as well as grief. But once the trauma started to ease off a little bit, then I started to really experience grieving. And it was hard because the people in my life had already grieved my mother's loss. And so I was like fresh in my grief and everyone else has already, you know, been through it. And it was, you know, of course, very traumatic for my family as well, even the ones that were not there that night. So I think for them, it's like hard for them to see me going through grief again. And they just wish that, you know, like, let's not talk about this. Let's just, um, I want you to be okay and be fine. So just be fine. I knew that eventually I was going to want to talk about grief and want to talk about what happened to me. 
it's been the missing piece is kind of like to talk about this because on my podcast, we're talking about like pop culture and stuff. It doesn't really make sense for me to, even though sometimes it will come up, but it's not like an episode ever about my mom's murder or about my experience with that. Mm. So it's just been something that I wanted to do. And now I feel like I have the space and I'm mentally ready to do it. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine that it took you a while to be mentally ready from mm-hmm. such a traumatic experience. Can you take us back a little bit? And I don't, you know, share as much as you feel comfortable, but just share a little bit about that night and what happened. Yeah. So at the time I was 18, I was in college and I had just gone on a break. So it was a Thursday night. So I had no school on Friday and there was like a break. My mom fell asleep reading next to me. And this was like 1.30 or 2 in the morning. And she had just fallen asleep. And she didn't have work the next day, which was very unusual. So both of us were kind of in like an unusual space. Usually she would have been asleep. But she fell asleep reading. I was in my clothes laying in bed about to listen to my iPod. And then I heard a noise in my house. And I just thought it was my cats because of the time I thought no one would be walking around in the house. We had really creaky floors. So I thought, oh, it must be the cats. And then a few minutes later, I heard the noise again. And this time the door opened and there was a woman standing there with a knife. And so, sorry, this is like so traumatic to to tell. I'm okay with it, but I feel bad whenever I say it because I'm like, I'm sharing this really traumatic thing with others. But um, so she ran after me first in the bed and stabbed me. And then my mom woke up and her glasses were still on. So I remember her like looking and trying to figure out what was going on. And when my mom got up, the woman ran around and started stabbing my mom. Well, I figured if I could get away, my mom could get away. Like I didn't even hesitate to like leave the room. I just figured, okay, I have to go out. I was living with my grandma who was disabled and my aunt. So I was like, I'm going to go tell them someone's in the house and I'm going to get out. And my mom will definitely be able to get out. Like, it's just, I didn't even think twice about that. So I ran out and I told my aunt, get out. Someone's in the house. And I knew she was going to tell my grandma. So I just ran out of the house and ran down the street to, I went to someone's car, like behind their car. I started to lose consciousness a little bit. And at first when I was stabbed, I didn't realize I was stabbed. I mean, I knew she had a knife because that's not the way you hold a gun, but I didn't have time to process it all. So I felt like, well, maybe she just hit me because it didn't hurt. And so once I was outside after, you know, minutes, I don't even know how many minutes had passed. I started to feel blood coming out of my, the side and I started to lose consciousness. And I was like, okay, I was definitely stabbed. And, um, I just waited there and I started to hear the sirens coming and stuff. I didn't know as I was losing consciousness, I had no idea who the woman was who did this. I knew it was a woman just because of how she was dressed and her hair but I always said I didn't see her face. It wasn't until much later after like EMDR therapy and stuff like that, that I think I actually did see her face, but I just blocked it out. Um, So when the siren started to come, I felt like, okay, I'm just going to die. And I also felt like if, 
she is out here. Maybe she went to find me. If she does find me and stabs me again, I know I'm going to die. But I also didn't feel afraid, I think, because I was in shock. And um, it still wasn't hurting. I just felt so much blood coming out of me. And it was so warm and sticky. And I just felt like I was sinking into the cement. So I thought, okay, I'm going to die. And I had all these weird thoughts, like, I'm only 18. I I never became a teacher like I wanted to. I never got married. Um, I was kind of sad. Like, I never did everything that I wanted to do in my life. And now this is how I'm going to die. But again, I wasn't scared. It didn't hurt yet. I was just like, this is, I kept thinking, this can't be real. This is a nightmare. And like trying to do things to get myself out of it. And at one point, I actually looked around. I was uh, feeling around for rocks. I was going to try to throw a rock at the window of the house mm-hmm. because I was trying to get someone's attention. Um, and I thought when this, when the police come and the sirens, I hear them, but I don't think they know where I am because I'm hiding. Right. So I was doing things to try to help myself, but I couldn't see because I was losing consciousness. So um, I was kind of like in prayer and I was pretty religious at the time. So it makes sense. I was praying that if I was supposed to die, then that's fine. Just take me. But if I'm not, then I need to get out to the street so the paramedics can see me. So I just started scooting down the driveway on my hands. And then all of a sudden I just heard in my head run. So I pushed myself up and started running and I collapsed in the street. Um, but they saw me and the police, you know, pointed their guns at me and said, drop your weapons. Cause they had no idea who I was. I was just someone running <laughs> and yeah. fell in the street. So then there was a bunch of neighbors outside by this time. And they said, oh, no, that's Megan. And someone, my glasses fell off me and someone came and put them on me, mm-hmm. which was good because I can't see anything without my glasses. And then it was at that point, once the paramedics came to me, that I really started to feel pain. Um, but I did hear them as they were taking my mom out of the house. I couldn't see it, but I heard them yelling her name. And I had a thought in my head that the way they were saying it, I thought she is she going to die she's probably dying but then that thought I swear it just went away and I didn't think it again but they were like saying stay with us stay with us and yelling so um I just didn't even think of it again that she could have died this was already on the news so people in my family started to find out and it was a really interesting experience like now Later on, it's almost been 15 years since this happened, but I just now started to have the conversations with people like, what was it like for you? How did you find out? Mm -hmm. Um, And they were saying every time they would get a call, people would say, don't turn on the news. Because the news was saying one person is dead, but they don't know who. And anytime people were calling hospitals, they couldn't give any information because there's laws about that. Yeah. So my... People in my family were finding out one person is dead. Nobody knows who. Everyone's, you know, freaking out and trying to figure out what to do. So, and I feel so bad because I think that's so dramatic. But my uncle and aunt came, the one who they were going to bring their daughter over. They came to the hospital and immediately I started to ask, um, can I call my mom? And they said, oh, your mom's at a different hospital, but you can't call her now because she's in surgery. And so I was 
thinking, okay, well, I didn't even think about, like, she had just been stabbed. I saw her being stabbed over and over. I didn't even think about what kind of damage must have been done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was in bad shape, but I just had always had this image of her, like, not being in bad shape. Like, she was just going to be fine and survive everything. So I just kept asking. Every time someone new would come, I would ask them. I found out later that they were telling people before they came in, uh, because they once you got to the hospital, they found out who had passed away. And they said, if you can't go in and not tell her, then just don't go in because they were afraid with me being in bad condition that I would find out and then, you know, not want to recover. Okay. Um, so I, then, you know, that created this whole thing with my healing where I was kind of mad at everybody. Yeah. Because everyone came in and told me that she was okay and that I just couldn't call her right now. So how did you find out that she died? Well, I was in that room and there was no TV. It was like the trauma unit just had, it was like a very small area with just sheets, you know, as dividers between all the people. And so once I had been there long enough and I was stable, they were going to move me to a regular room with a TV. So they said, someone has to tell her before she gets into the room with the TV in case she sees it on the news. So they were asking who was going to do it. And there was, you know, not many people there yet, but it was my grandpa or my uncle between them of who was going to tell them. I mean, who's going to tell me. Mm-hmm. So my grandpa decided to tell me. And I, one of the things that I will never forget is the way his face looked before he was going to tell me that. And I think it's just something like now I see on even movies or TV when people are trying to replicate that, you know, that face of like, I'm about to give you the worst news ever. And it still makes me cry. It makes me cry just talking about it now because it's such this certain look people have. And so he like looked at me and he's like, I have to tell you something. Your mom didn't make it. And I just remember I was screaming and crying and I think I fell asleep. And then when I woke up, I asked again, can I call my mom's room? And then they had to tell me again. So then I was hysterical all over again. It's interesting. I feel like when you go through trauma, your brain can only process so much. So mm-hmm. when you were saying like, you know, you you woke up, you asked where your mom was, someone told you that she had died and then you asked again. Mm-hmm. That's so normal. Like how can you, you know, your 18 year old brain process yeah. the fact that your mom just died. So you know, that's a very common experience, I think, for people who've been through trauma to like, tell me that again. Like, did that really happen? Mm-hmm. You, know, you mentioned that it felt like you were in a nightmare. Like, it, yeah. it was a nightmare. Yeah. So once I got to the other hospital room, I tried not to turn on any of the news ever. And I did a really good job. I didn't actually see my mom on the news until the day I got out of the hospital 10 days later. Because when I came home to my Nana's house, um, she loves the news. She has a TV in every room and has the news on all the time. So the first thing I did was turn on the TV and there was my mom's picture right when I turned the TV on. Mm. That was the first time I actually saw her on the TV because in the hospital, I would just put on these movie channels and watch stuff. But I was in the hospital for 10 days. They took my chest tubes at once to see if my lungs were okay and my lungs collapsed again. So I had to redo, do it again, not the surgery part, but just get them put in. That day was the day that everyone 
decided to come see me who hadn't seen me yet because they thought, oh, she's doing so good. She looks better. People can come now. And of course, that was the day they did that. So when everyone came, I looked horrible. It was probably the worst I looked because my lungs had collapsed again. I was in so much pain that I couldn't even open my eyes. So that was the day everyone in my family came to see me that hadn't seen me. And I just remember them sobbing because they had all just found out like this horrible thing happened to their family and I was okay. But here I was just laying in the hospital bed, looking like probably like I was going to die. I couldn't move. I couldn't open my eyes. I wasn't talking, but I could hear everyone. And I wanted to talk to them and say, no, I'm okay. You know, but I couldn't. So that was, another really upsetting day when I could hear everyone sobbing and crying and like Mm -hmm. them having to deal with this too. So I'm, I'm struck by the, um, the amount of concern that you had and continue, I think to have for other people. Yeah. I still tell people before I tell the story, I'm like, okay, are you sure you're ready? Make sure. (laughs) I don't want to make anyone upset, but I'm so used to talking about it that I can talk about it. And then the next minute laugh. Right. And you know, like right now I'm crying a little bit, but I can still laugh and be happy. And I just want to warn everybody, you know, this is a heavy story and I'm used to telling it, but you might not be used to hearing it. (laughs) That's right. This podcast is brought to you by Inner Harbor, providing support and education to grieving students everywhere. Inner Harbor provides workshops and trainings for staff and students, teaching you how to support other grievers. So if you are interested in learning more about how we can educate your class, your fraternity, your sorority, your team, your club, or your agency, go to www.inner-harbor.org to learn more. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter and check out all of the other services we offer. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can also sponsor an episode by checking out the sponsorship page on the website. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can go to Apple or Audible Podcasts and leave a review. Now back to the show. So what kind of support did you feel like you got immediately after, you know, your, I'll say your immediate recovery, I'm sure recovery was a long process, but, you know, coming out of the hospital, your mom had just died. I don't even know if you were able to attend a funeral and things, but what, what kind of support did you feel like you got from family and friends right around that time? I think everyone was there physically. People were trying to be there and they were trying to be helpful and stuff, but I think they just, nobody knew what to do or say because it was something that was so traumatic yeah so and I I just remember that people were making me mad I don't remember exactly how but like my aunt one of my aunts not the one who was there that night so my aunt and grandma were also stabbed that night I didn't really go much into their story but my other aunt was my mom's best friend she lived in Vegas so Mm -hmm. she came down right away she went right into like this different, I don't know what it was. I'd have to stop and think, you know, all the stages of grief, but she went right into like trying to figure it out. Fix it mode. Yeah. And trying to like, why did this happen? You know, no one had said anything yet. The 
um, the person who did it, the woman who did it stayed in the, in the area. So she wasn't like trying to escape or anything. She ended up going to jail that night, but they kept asking me, you know, did you know her? Uh, and I kept saying no. And none of my family did my aunt or my grandma. We were all like, we don't know who she is. So we ended up finding out that she's a neighbor who lived like four houses down from us. And from one of the windows in her house, you could see into my house to where I always was. So much later on, we found out she was watching me through the window before it happened. Mm. But at the time, we didn't know all this stuff. That stuff came out during the murder trial. So my aunt went right into like, well, she came, she was after you first. So maybe she was trying to get you. And this was so soon after it all happened that I remember feeling really upset. And she was like obsessive about like talking about the details and let's figure out what happened and why did she do this? And I was like, totally not ready. And she was staying with, with us at the house where I was staying and she kept making me more afraid. So I would have like at night, I didn't even want to be around her. I would be afraid of her because she was dealing with her grief in a totally different way than what everyone else was. And it made me mad. It made me upset. It made me sad. But as far as support, all my family was there trying to be there. There was a lot of children in my family and we were all trying to protect them from them hearing what really happened, but they all knew anyways. So it was like this weird us trying to not say it in front of them, but they already knew and they were kind of waiting for us to acknowledge it and none of us would. That's often what happens, right? Kids kind of know something's going on. There's a lot of anxiety, but no one's talking to them about it. Mm-hmm. And then when they eventually find out, they feel like, were the adults keeping secrets from me? Can I trust them? Can I talk to them? Do they not want to talk to me about it? It creates all of yeah. these, you know, elephants in the room that um, that can be dangerous for kids. Mm-hmm. So um, I hope they're doing okay as well. Yeah, they are. It was, it was really tough because I didn't know what to say. So I kind of looked towards their parents to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? And they would just be like, well, something happened and now she's dead. And now Megan's out of the hospital and she has these bandages on. And the kids are so smart that, you know, I had, like I said, I had this knife wound on my arm that was connected, you know, where my arm was, I was kind of blocking the knife. So I had this wound. And then I had another one where the knife hit me and it's still here on my forearm. It's very tiny, but it was really red when I got out of the hospital. And so they, all the kids like knew something had happened and I'm sure they'd heard things from the news, the TV, from parents talking on the phone. Um, And then they saw me and they were like, what happened to your arm? You know, and this tiny thing on my arm they would look at it and be like, what happened to your arm? And I'm just like, oh, I don't know. I fell. And they would look at me really weird. Like something is up. You're not telling us something. So I think it just scared them all more Yeah, because they didn't know what to expect. So at my mom's funeral, I remember one of my cousins was so terrified of being around my mom's casket and she was terrified it was going to be opened. She didn't, I think she just didn't know what to expect or what. And I felt so bad. (laughs) because I didn't know what the right thing to do was either. Mm -hmm. But friends didn't know what to say or do. And they were telling me more of, 
if I was hearing from people, it would be like, so-and-so drove by your house because they wanted to see. And so-and-so drove by the murderer's house and they were having a party. Like just things like that. I Details that I didn't want or, you know, and I didn't know what to do with. And it was like them being, now that I look back, 18-year-olds trying to, you know, figure out what happened. And, and yep. then there would be like, you know, oh, we saw her boyfriend at the 7-Eleven. And they said they knew you. Like this rumor started going around. And that's where I was hearing that stuff from. Mm-hmm. So if you could have, and I don't know if you know the answer to this or not, but if you can like go back to your 18-year-old friends, what would you have preferred that they do? Or what advice would you have to an 18-year-old right now who's trying to support a friend who's been through something really violent or traumatic? I would say to just, check in and say that I'm here and is there anything I can do and not that people know like I didn't know what someone could have done but I think it's comforting when someone's like I'm here tell me what you need Mm -hmm. even if you don't know what you need and maybe to visit because I don't think friends really visited um they probably didn't know what to say or do but it would have been nice just to have people show up and see me Mm -hmm. and I mean I guess that's it just to be there without any other agenda just like hey I'm here yep let me know what you need and if you don't know what you need then I'll just be here for you yep so how did this loss this trauma how did it shape the rest of your college experience oh well when it was time for me to think about going back to school, I don't even know. It must have been like maybe six months after or so. I was like, I'm going to do fun classes so that I'll want to go to school. Mm-hmm. And the first one of the first classes I took was photography, which was a huge mistake because there was the dark room. And I had such bad PTSD. I could never go into the dark room. I ended up dropping out of the class. But it felt like everything I tried to do, there was some reason or something that made it really challenging. I had just started driving like the year before this happened because I always say I was like a late bloomer. My mom bought me a car when I was 17, but I refused to drive. I didn't want anything to do with driving. I was like terrified of it. So I just started driving. And then this happened and I was like, I'm going to sell my car. I'm never driving again everything seemed scarier now. And then there was so many people and I started to have these weird, like if people were walking close to me, I would just get really nervous and scared. And I kept turning around and like, this would happen all the time, not just at school, but at the grocery store, it took years. I would always feel people and that feeling of someone being really close to you or behind you and not knowing who they are, what they're going to do was always really hard. So there was just always a ton of little things that made going back to school, kind of unbearable. Everything was just so challenging for at least the first like five years. PTSD was just so bad. So you ended up dropping out of school. Mm-hmm. What about after that, after the, sort of the initial immediate um, loss? When did you finally feel like, okay, I can either get support or, you know, I'm learning how to live with life? I was doing therapy off and on, but I think 
it wasn't helping because I wasn't ready. I don't know what would have made me ready. But one of the things that really changed for me was five years after it happened, I thought about going to a support group and I didn't know where to start. I didn't know victims of violent crimes. No one had told me about it. I just Googled homicide support groups. And one of the first things I saw was parents of murdered children. And I almost didn't even click it because I was like, I'm not a parent of a murdered child. So I didn't, I almost didn't even do it, but I did click it and found out that it was for all family members and friends who've lost someone by homicide. Mm -hmm. So I went, I went with someone by that time I had found a friend group where everyone knew what happened. None of, I don't think any of them knew me at the time because this was five years later. So I kind of like reinvented myself. I'd stopped talking to people that I knew at the time. And now I had other friends. And I was also at this time, it was before my mom had died. I never came out as a lesbian. And then after she died uh, three years later, I did. So there was also that, which could be why I also had a new friend group and like just a new kind of trying to like reinvent myself and my life. So I had a much more supportive friend group. And I think I went with one of them. We went to Parents of Murdered Children. And that's really where things started to change for me. And so it was like, wow, I'm around all these people who get it, who have been through this. And so I started going to those meetings once a week. And I went for a a long time. I always recommend Parents of Murdered Children. It was really amazing. That sounds amazing. I think, you know, you're speaking to the power of support groups. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, that feeling of connection that you're not alone, that there are other people who get it. And, um, you know, and the fact that you hadn't come out yet when this happened, when your mom died, you know, already probably led you to feel a little disconnected from some of your friends. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you had come out, you had a supportive group of friends who, who knew more of your authentic self. And then you were able to connect to other people who, um, you know, who have been through something similar and can relate to you must've felt so, I'm just, I just feel so warm and I'm so grateful that you found something like that. Yeah. It was really amazing. How are you doing now? It's, you know, many years later, but some ways it's, you know, not at all. Yeah. Um, I'm always in awe of like my life now because I will take the trash out at night and I live in a very dark area. There's like not many lights outside and I'll just take the trash out and I won't really think about it. And then suddenly like when the trash lid slams, I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember when I could not walk outside by myself at night. And I'm just like, wow, I'm doing it. And it's so easy now that I almost don't even think about it. And like I said, it's been 15 years. And maybe the last five or six years have been like the most transformative. And maybe that's because the trauma kind of started to get easier to deal with. And grief started to come up more. And that's really hard. But it's not to me as hard as PTSD was. Mm-hmm. So um, it's just different. And there's so many things I thought, you know, after my mom died, I went through this really 
guilty phase of like I we found out that the murderer was after me and then ended up you know so she got second degree murder because she was after me but not accidentally killed my mom but just ended up killing her which I thought which really made me really mad because I thought it doesn't matter she still killed her what's the difference I just wanted her to get first degree to go away longer but I went through this really intense period of like I should have died or we both should have died because I wouldn't want my mom to have to deal with the living of after what happened, you know? So I went through that. And for a long time, I wished that I had died because I was like, this is so hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. And it was easy before, like, even, you know, I said when I got stabbed and I was hiding behind that car, I wasn't in pain yet. I wasn't really afraid. I just kept thinking, okay, I'm going to die. That's fine. Let me just die. And now here I am with all this PTSD and sadness and all these things, it would have been easier to just die. So now I don't feel like that at all. And I don't meet many people who have been through something exactly, you know, like mine, but I always tell people it doesn't get easier, but it gets different Mm -hmm. and it gets to a manageable point. And you might even find yourself like me where I experience like great joy again and happiness. And I'm able to think about my mom without only thinking about her murder. Because for a long time, anytime I would think of her, it would always end up badly. Like if I had a dream about her, that was a good dream. By the end of the dream, I was crying in my sleep hysterically because I was thinking about, you know, well, she was murdered. Right. Now I'm able to think about her life. And I mean, I've done therapy for years now. EMDR was really, really helpful. So I think all those things, time, therapy, EMDR, support groups, and living authentically, you know, my truth and not shutting up about what happened have made everything so much better. (laughs) I'm so glad that you had a space. It sounds like many spaces to be able to do that. Um, you know, it doesn't sound like you had it immediately after the fact, but mm-hmm. you know, in some respects, maybe you weren't ready to do it yet then. Anyway, yeah. sometimes things happen when they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you had that. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm just, I also, I don't know how I want to fit this into the podcast, but I did want to go back at some point and just talk mm-hmm. about, um, you had mentioned that um, right after your mom had died, that they were, that family members were trying to be protective of the kids and they kind of knew and, you know, they had been hearing things on TV and, but no one was Mm -hmm. talking about it in the family, which is also a really common experience. And I think actually we might talk about that a little bit on your podcast, Mm -hmm. how to talk to kids. Um, because, but I just think, you know, they knew more than we gave them credit for knowing. Absolutely. And it really wasn't until last year that I, I have a younger brother who we have different moms, so he didn't live with me. But I asked him, you know, what was that like? Because I was 18, so he was 10. And he was like, yeah, we knew. And he said he went through really intense anger, even as a child. 
So I just feel bad because I don't think he was getting support through that because we weren't talking to him about it. Right. So what could have been different if we were talking about it and we were like, you know, let's also support these younger children through the things that they're going to go through, no matter if we tell them or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. A really good lesson. And, you know, uh, no, uh, no judgment. I think that that's a very common experience. Adults Mm. don't want to tell kids that murder can happen. So let's not tell them. Um, It's, you know, it's life changing just to know that that is something that's out there in the world. So it makes sense that adults want to protect kids from it. Um, You know, unfortunately, we we can't really protect them from it. So, um, you know, it's, it's good to start. Hopefully you never need to know how to tell children about murder, but yeah, in the case that you do need to tell them, um, there are good resources out there. So um, thank you for talking about that. Yeah, you're welcome. If people have questions or they want to reach out to you, how can they do that? Well, I have a website. That's probably the easiest way to find me because it's just my name. It's meganashley.com. And my email is there. You can find all my social media there. So I get a lot of DMs and stuff. I try to answer them all. And my Instagram is hi, Megan Ashley. Um, so yeah, I love talking to people. I get I, every once in a while, because I've done podcasts in the past. I get people who have said, oh, I heard your story and I've been through something similar or I lost someone this way. And it always moves me and I try to respond to all of those, you know? So I love that. I love to hear, not that I love to hear someone's been through something so horrible, but I love to, that they've found me and that I could help them in some way. Thank you so much, Megan, for coming on the podcast. And thank you to Stephen Bluestein for audio production. Next week on the show, I'm interviewing Alana Hammond. She's a 20-year-old student at Virginia State University, majoring in psychology and math. She agreed to be a guest on the podcast because she's dealt with a lot of hardships and grief, losing both parents before she was 13. She wants to share her story and tell people what she has learned in the hopes of helping someone else. And I think she will. So I hope you will join us next week on the show. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.